great. Fantastic. Nice work. You guys don't seem as enthusiastic about sounding good as I do about you sounding good. That's all right. That's no problem. Hey, we're going to just jump right into the message this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn to the book of the Romans, book of Romans, chapter 8. Um, in, in the Bible, sometimes, you know, if you were in school and they were teaching you to write uh, like a thesis or an essay or whatever, you were taught that you're supposed to put the, uh, the main statement right at the beginning. You're supposed to like, here's, what I, here's the point I'm trying to make, and then the rest of your, your uh, paper supported that statement. But that's not how they did things in the Bible. In the Bible, they like to put the main statement right in the middle. And it wasn't that you were supposed to skip to the middle and read it, but everything working up to that supported this conclusion, and then everything away from that kind of like was a result of that. So a lot of biblical authors would put their main thing right in the middle. So we're going to read the very middle of the book of Romans. And this is what I think, this is arguably, the point of the book of Romans. So if you're like a Bible reader, if you like reading the Bible, and hopefully you do, we're at church, if you're one of those types, then this is kind of the point that Paul is trying to make out of the book of Romans. This is what he wants you to know. This is like if you're listening to uh, Handel's Messiah. This is the Hallelujah Chorus, where everybody stands up and starts like singing along with it. This is the bullseye on the center of the target. This is the big reveal. This is where the presenter rolls back the curtains and says, this is what it's all about. This is why we're here. This is where, where, uh, where, where Apple, when they're doing their presentation, they say, oh, one more thing. And then they show you the next amazing piece of technology that they're going to show you. This is Paul saying, hey, this is it. This is the point. This is what I want you to hear. This is what I want you to know. And so Paul was actually writing to people he had never met before. He'd never interacted with these people. He'd heard about them. They'd probably heard about him, uh, but he'd never met them. So he's writing them information that he wants people he's never met to hear. I have also never met Paul, so I am in that category. I think that he's writing us something that we should hear, something that we should take home. Our ears should perk up just a little bit. We should tune in just a little bit more to this part. It's not like the rest of the Bible is important or the rest of the book of Romans isn't important. It's all important. But here he is like getting to the point of what he's saying. Um, and I've been studying this for a while, so I'm a little excited about it, as you can probably tell. I haven't had that much caffeine this morning. So Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 31. This is a passage you're probably familiar with, uh, but we're going to start here and, uh, and just follow along. This is what he says. What then shall we say in response to these things? What things? The first seven, eight chapters of the book, especially the, the last little bit. What shall we say in response to these things? He's been telling them good news. He's been telling them good things about God. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's good stuff right there. We just stop right there. That's it. If God is for us, if God is on our side, we don't have to fight God. That's good news. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And note the legal language here. This is kind of interesting. Verse 33, who will bring any charge? Who will bring an indictment against those whom God has chosen? Who's going to charge these people? These are people that I've chosen. These are people that I've selected. Who's going to charge them? The only person that could possibly bring a charge for them is the person that died for them. This is good news. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who then condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, 
or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can the circumstances of life prove to you that God doesn't love you? Paul's saying, no, not at all. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He, he says this in verse 37. This is good. This is like, like triumphant language. He says this, Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. He made up a word, more than conquerors in Greek, through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, the present, the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good stuff. That is good stuff. You read that, and there's certain points in your life where, you, you know, your response actually is perfectly appropriate because that's what we're going to talk about today, how we can hear this overwhelming news and we can be like, meh, that's, that's cool. But that's because that's what I do sometimes. We're going to talk about that in, that in a second. But this is good stuff. Like if you're at certain points in your life, if you're feeling down, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling ashamed, if you're feeling guilty, if you're feeling like a failure and you read a passage like that, you're like, man, if God is for me, who can be against me? Nobody. Not present, not future, not demons, not angels. Nobody. I, I like I am in with God. Last week we heard an excellent sermon. Jordan preached about this idea that God's love is absolutely unconditional. It was fantastic. So I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And I want to build on that a little bit. This is totally unauthorized by Jordan. So he may not like what I add to it. But I think it's good because I think there's a few more things that we want to know about God's love. About what it means to experience and know and, and feel God's love. We are more than conquerors. Now he says at the end of that passage, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. And that's what this whole series has been about. Like those of us that are in Christ, those of us that are on a journey with Christ, those of us that follow Christ, that believe in Christ, that have been baptized into Christ, those of us that have this relationship with Christ, we're talking about what this looks like. What does a life with Christ look like? And it's about experiencing. It's about knowing that God's love is unconditional. And let me let you in on a little secret. Churches haven't done a fantastic job about telling the world that God's love is unconditional. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. I want to acknowledge pretty much exactly what happened this morning. I, I've read this passage all my life. And most of the time when I read this passage, I'm like, cool, God loves me. That's nice. What's for lunch? And I, I kind of feel like a lot of us, I was, I was actually curious, I was debating a little bit this week, I was like, do, re, do people really respond that way to a passage like this that just talks about God's overwhelming love, his unconditional love, nothing could separate, do people really respond with kind of that, that uh, you know, casual attitude toward it? And I was like, no, that's probably just me. And then we read that and everybody's like, in the room is like, eh, yeah, God's love, that's nice. What, uh, what's the real meat that you're going to get to today, Patrick? What's the real important thing that you're going to get to? Because i got plans that I want to get on with my day. And I think that we read a passage like this, and we have the same response that I've had many times in my life. Like, oh, cool, God loves me. That's nice. Let's move on to the next thing. And we run right over to the fact that the creator of the universe, the God that spoke the world into existence, loves you. Loves you. That is not a concept that was familiar to people who have a relationship with deities, with gods, with, with many gods. The gods don't love us. The gods 
hate us or the gods are, 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 are upset with us or the gods are frustrated with us or we have to make peace with the gods and we have to offer things to the gods. And that's not the way it is with God. Our God loves us. Our God makes peace with us. That's important news. But you know what? More often than not, I have this really kind of casual, shrug my shoulders, attitude toward that news. And I'm, I'm curious as to why. I want to acknowledge the reality that a lot of us, maybe, maybe it's a struggle with those of us that have grown up in the church and have always had some sort of relationship with God, struggle a little bit with the idea of being impressed by the fact that the creator of the universe actually cares about us. We struggle with that a little bit. At least I struggle with that a little bit. I know all the stanzas to Jesus loves me. I've heard it. I've been there. I know it. I'm, I'm set. I know. We don't need to talk about God unconditionally loving us anymore. I get it. It's fine. I'm going to go on with my day. And I want to make the point that there seems to be a fine line between knowing God's love is a given and taking God's love for granted. And I want to offer you the opportunity this morning to ask yourself whether or not you are in a position where you take God's love for granted. I know most of us will be like, well, yeah, probably I do. I'm not a perfect person. I probably do. But I want to kind of acknowledge the reality of this and what we can do about it. <clears throat> I was sitting in a sermon one time, sat in a lot of sermons, um, and the preacher was talking about Christ dying on the cross. And the audience was kind of, you know, pretty typical church audience, totally unfazed, totally unmoved. Jesus died on the cross. Check. We've heard that a lot. We hear it every Sunday. Let's move on. And this preacher was getting upset at the audience. He, was, he started to yell at us, which is always fun when you're the audience and the preacher is like, yeah, you guys. And what he said was, is you guys should be crying right now. And I'm sitting in the, in the, I'm looking around like, well, is anybody crying? Can somebody please cry for us so we can move on? Will somebody be the designated crier so he can move on? And he just like, he was haranguing us like, you guys should feel more emotional. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You're terrible. And Jesus loves you anyway. And you should be, you should feel more emotional. And I literally, you know, I'm younger, and I would never think this now. But I was thinking, if you want us to feel more emotional, you should preach better. It's, it's kind of your fault, right? You're the one preaching. We're just listening. Do a better job, you know? If you want me to laugh at a joke, make it a funny joke, you know? If you want me to cry, make your point better. And that's what I'm thinking. And I understand, like, it's not really fun for a preacher to get up and tell you how you should feel about something, right? If I got up here and I was like, you should really be sad about what you've been doing. You know, it's not, nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be told how to feel, right? For the most part. Nobody likes that. Um, and so we, I get that. But I also get this preacher's point. I get that we have become kind of jaded to the good news. We kind of have. We've heard it. Let's move on. Let's talk about the deeper stuff in the Bible. Listen, it doesn't get deeper than Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. It doesn't get deeper than that. And the point at which we move on from that, we've moved on from the gospel. And we don't want to do that. That's not the type of church that we are. That's not what we're all about. I understand what he was getting at. I understand why he was upset. Have you ever watched um, Old Yeller with somebody that didn't cry? <laughs> Sociopath. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it should get you checked. Ladies, you should always watch Old Yeller with a potential uh, husband because if he doesn't cry, move on, right? <laughs> that should be a test. You should watch or watch the first 10 minutes of Up. If there's not a little like 
lump in the throat, if, they're not, if there's not something going on, they're dead inside, right? I, I get it. I get what he's talking about. I mean, this, this speech that Paul has given us in Romans chapter 8, this is like in I have a dream territory. I mean, goosebumps. Like the way that people heard this message for the first time, Paul wrote it in a letter. Remember, they hadn't met him before. They all would gather on a Sunday and they'd be like, hey guys, guess what? We got a letter from Paul. Cool, let's read it. Everybody's in the room and somebody's reading this letter. I don't know. I wasn't there. Nobody told me. But I imagine they got to this point in Romans chapter 8. I imagine they had like chills. Like, wow, God. Who, like, what shall we say if God is for us? Who can be against us? And imagine they lived under the, um, uh, the oppression of one of the greatest empires in history, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had it out for the Christians. And Paul said, if God is for you, who can be against you? No power can be against you. You can imagine that they were like, whoa. The impact of that, that statement, I can imagine it felt like a big deal. So here's what I want to speak about today, is how do we take God's love as a given, God's unconditional love, we know it's a given, we know it's settled, we know it's done, we know our shame has been taken away, how do we take that as a given without taking it for granted? How do we understand God's love as a given without taking it for granted? Chick-fil-A has a corporate policy, how's that for a transition? Um, they, have a, they have a corporate policy, and we have at least one um, Chick-fil-A employee in the room and, so I, and a former Chick-fil-A employee, so I was asking them a little bit about this. But if you go to Chick-fil-A, uh, there's this phrase that you always hear. So if those of you that have been, haven't been to Chick-fil-A, you're nuts. But if you haven't been, you should go just for this experience. Because when, when you say thank you, what do they say in response? My pleasure. They will never say you're welcome. Never. Well... Never. If they say you're welcome, you know that a Chick-fil-A employee hates you. Like, that's, that's how you know that they're really mad. They always say, my pleasure, because what Chick-fil-A has a corporate policy called language of service. And so they don't use the normal terms. They don't say, have a nice day. They say something like over the top, like, may God bless you and keep you or whatever. I mean, I, I'm making that up, but it's like always really over the top language. Uh, so instead of, I asked, I asked a former employee, instead of saying yes, you don't say yes, you say absolutely right? Real positive, real happy. You don't say, no problem. You'd say, I'd be delighted to, right? Smile on the face. Uh, you don't say, have a nice day. You say, you're an amazing human being. I made that one up, actually. They don't, I don't think they say that one. But it's nice, right? You go into Chick-fil-A, and they're like, my pleasure. And you're like, oh, well, this is, look at this place. This is great. Now, this is the truth. If I had to fight employees to eat Chick-fil-A sandwiches, I would. It doesn't matter to me that they're nice because it's delicious food, and I would, like, fight people to eat it. But the fact that they're really nice helps, too. It's kind of nice. My pleasure. I'm delighted. Absolutely. It's nice. It feels good. It feels good. But what I don't believe is that when I walk into Chick-fil-A, that it's just me that they like. Because they say, my pleasure, to everybody, right? Even if someone is just mean and rude, I think they would probably say, my pleasure. They say, absolutely, I'm delighted. The actual, see, the reason they're treating me that way isn't really about me. It's corporate policy. And that's cool, nice. I still like Chick-fil-A. I still want to eat there. You can't eat there today because it's closed. Sorry about that. I still like it. They close on Sundays. That's another reason people love Chick-fil-A. They're closed on Sundays. But if, you know, so you know, you know, it's, you get special treatment, but it's not because you're special, right? You get special treatment, it's, but it's not because you're special. And here's the point I want to make. I think that we believe God loves us. 
But I think we might think like, yeah, God, of course God loves us. It's corporate policy. God has to love us. Of course he loves us. It's in the employee guidebook. God has to love us. It's not necessarily me that God loves. It's just God loves, and I happen to be under this umbrella of God's love. For God so loved the world. It's a comprehensive policy. Of course God loves. Um, Have you ever been in a situation where you're driving down the road and you look over at another driver and they have like their gas tank open or they have like maybe uh, their tires low or whatever and as you're driving you're trying to indicate to them that something's wrong? Have you ever done that? Now, I don't know, maybe some of you don't do that. I do that because I'm a nice guy and I care about my fellow human beings. But I like try to like, hey, roll down your window. We still do this even though nobody has these windows, or I guess a few of us. Uh, Roll down your window. You know, your tire's low or whatever. You're driving 45, 50 miles down the road. Your tire's low. So I remember I saw somebody with a tire low, something like that. Something that I thought needed attention that they probably shouldn't keep driving. And so I like pulled up next to them and I'm like waving with one hand. I'm sure one hand was on the wheel. That's hard to do. Anyway, I'm waving, you know, waving at them. And they thought I was having a road rage incident, right? So they're like facing forward and like you can see the other person like the passenger in the car like hey that guy don't look at him you know just keep going forward and now I think a lot of people would have been like well whatever they don't need my help good luck if they have a terrible car accident and all die in a fiery crash that's their fault I tried but I'm aggressively nice so I'm like I'm gonna chase these people down and let them know there's a problem and so I spent probably a couple miles trying to get their attention. Like, you got a problem. There's something wrong, right? You know, you got to fix. And finally, it was funny because we're traveling down the road, you know, 40, 50 miles an hour. And you could tell their, their mentality shifted. They're like, they, this guy, they went from thinking I was road rage guy to thinking like, oh, oh, he's trying to help. Okay. And it was kind of this awkward, like, even in different cars traveling down the road, it was still this awkward interaction. Like, oh, okay, thank you, sir. You know, you're being a little too nice, but well, thank you. That's fine. Now, the problem is, is that it didn't, my actions toward them didn't really have anything to do with them. I didn't know them. They could be terrible people. They could be great people. I don't know them. It just was a nice thing to do. And I think we think of God like that. God's a nice person, so of course he loves people, but it really doesn't have anything to do with me. And there's an element of that that's probably true, but I want you to know something. That, that w- I think we think of it this way. God loves me in a generalized, comprehensive, non-specific way. And I think maybe we would say it this way. God loves me, but God doesn't necessarily like me. God loves me, but God doesn't necessarily like me. Now, I know that sounds a little backward because we think of like as being the thing. You know, like is an easy thing. Love is a hard thing. But I think we get, as Christians, we get God is love and he loves terrible people. I'm a terrible person. He loves me. I don't know that we believe God likes us. And this is not something we talk about in church very often. God likes me? I mean, who cares? Where are you so wimpy with your emotional needs that you need God to like you? But I think this is important. I think we need to understand that God loves and he loves everybody. But I think we need to know that God loves me. God cares about me. God God looks at me and is happy or delighted or loving to me. Now you may not, that may still be like, yeah, whatever. Now for me, this doesn't really make a big deal. Uh, It doesn't mean a lot to me when I think about like me being good. Like sometimes I think, sure, God should love me. I'm a pretty decent person, right? Why wouldn't God love me? I'm a lovable human being. But there are other times in my life where I start thinking about maybe the real me, maybe the darker side of me, maybe the person who's made some choices that 
I wish I hadn't. Maybe the person who's got some regret and some shame and some failure and, and deep, dark problems. I, sure, God loves, and I get that, but if God looks at me, if God pays any attention to me, he, he doesn't like me. But when Jordan was talking about last week, God's unconditional love, I was thinking about the dark side of me, that God unconditionally loves that part of me as well. It's not just the lovable part of Patrick that God loves. God loves the, the dark side of me. God, God loves that person. Dare I say God likes that person. God goes out of his way to help us understand that his love is not a generic one-size-fits-all. Jesus tried to illustrate this over and over. He, he runs to greet the prodigal in Luke. He runs to greet him. The prodigal son who has messed up his relationship with his father. His father's at the window, face pressed against the window every day to see that prodigal son walking down the road, hoping he catches a glimpse. And God runs to him. He knows the numbers of hair on our head, Jesus tells us. He knows that. Oh, yeah, we've known that since we were little kids. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares about that. You, me, individually. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, there's a book you read all the time, Zephaniah. Some of you are like, I forgot that was a book in the Bible. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says God delights in his people. Do you think about the fact that God delights in you? That you make God smile? Do you think God loves your sin? Don't misunderstand what I'm talking about. God's like, oh, I love the fact that Patrick's messing up and hurting people. No, but God delights in you. God loves you, but God likes you. Um, Psalms talks about this a number, a number of times too. Earlier in chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, God says, look, you don't have to be a slave. You don't have to fear me. In fact, why don't you call me dad? And he uses a specific Aramaic word, this, talk, this, this phrase, a loving, close phrase. Call me dad. That's the kind of relationship that I want with you. Romans teaches us that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And maybe the message you need to hear is God loves you. Maybe that's where you are. But maybe where you are, and some of us struggle with God's love, we take God's love for granted because we're not actually convinced he likes us. We're convinced we're just a customer at Chick-fil-A and they're saying my pleasure because that's what they have to do. God has to. I tolerate you. I said I would let anybody that gets baptized come in. So okay, whatever. I don't really like you, but go ahead. Come on in. That's not the way it is with God. God loves you, but believe it or not, and this may not land with you and that's fine, but maybe someday it'll mean something. God likes you. God loves you, but God also likes you. That's good news. That's good for me to hear. Now, we have to firmly, firmly establish this fact that God likes us for this next part to make sense because some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say. <laughs> now you're paying attention. That's weird. Um, I have a rule that I generally apply with my children, and the rule is this. Uh, if it's nice outside, you know, not raining, not snowing, not whatever, um, no screens, no Computers, no Nintendos, no iPads, no TV, no screens. If it's nice outside, no screens. And the kids know this because I reiterate this rule quite a bit. You would think I would say it once and they would know for all eternity. That doesn't seem to be the way it works with parenting. So the other day I come upstairs and I have a child. I should remain nameless. And, and they are stretched out on the couch with a screen in front of them. And it's a beautiful day, 72 degrees outside. Sun is shining. And I didn't even have to say anything because they knew exactly what I was thinking. I walked upstairs and I looked at them and I said, hey fill in the blank with the name, and they said, oh, hold up, hold up, 
Um, I was the good child yesterday, so today is my day off. <laughs> and I was like, I, 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 you were a good child yesterday. Excellent. I see what you're thinking there, but that's not the way this works. Like, like you don't build up a good cachet and then you can draw from the bank later so you can be bad. That's not the way this works. Um, and, and I think it's true, and I have talked with more than just myself, but sometimes I talk to myself. But when it comes to sin, I have had a thought that goes something like this. This is wrong. I shouldn't do this. Or this is a problem. I need to fix this. But God loves me. So maybe it's not ideal, but eh, it's not the end of the world either. God loves me. I don't really have to fix it. It's not really a thing I have to worry about. I was the good child yesterday. Today is my day off. And I think God would look at us and say, I see what you're getting at, but that's not really the way it works here. That's not really how this works. Most of us, I shouldn't say most of us because I, I want this to be most of us because I don't want it to just be me. I have a couple of projects around the house that I need to, to finish up, wrap up, you know, a few details. A couple dozen projects around the house that I need to finish up. And, uh, and I'll get around to them. I mean, they've been left undone for about, since we moved in the house, so greater part of a decade. Uh, and I've been waiting for the right moment, and it just hasn't come yet. I just got things that I got to do, and I get to the point where I'll be laying on the couch, uh, and I'll be like, ah, I really need to finish that, but ah, house isn't falling down. No big deal. I'll get to it sometime. And I think for some people, sin can feel like an unfinished project around the house. It can feel like uh, just something we got to get to eventually. I really, maybe it goes like this, I really should get a handle on this being judgmental thing. But oh well, God loves me. I really should nail down this generosity. I've been feeling a little bit about, bad about that. And I really should like, be more generous. But ah, God loves me. Someday I'll get a handle on that lust or that greed or that whatever. But hey, at least God loves me. I, I, I'm good in other areas. Today is my day off. And I see what you're thinking there. But that's not the way it works with God. You see what we're actually doing, and this is crazy, is that we're using God's unconditional love as a motivation or an excuse or a justification to sin. Isn't that weird to think about? That we, <laughs> how twisted are we, how twisted am I, that I can take God's overwhelming, unconditional, send Jesus to the cross kind of love and use it to make myself feel better about not dealing with sin. That's a little messed up, isn't it? I was good yesterday. Today's my day off. Mm, it's not how it works. Someone said, I love to sin. God loves to forgive. It's a win-win. <laughs> First of all, let's be clear about what's going on. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. You can look it up. My shoe's untied, and I'm going to tie it, so don't mind me. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. You've got to do what you've got to do when you're preaching sometimes. So, Romans 2, 4. This is Paul speaking at the beginning of uh, this book. And I love this statement. This is such a good verse. He says, or do you show contempt? Contempt is a good word. Let's hold on to that for a second. Contempt. Contempt of court. For the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness, and we could even include God's love, that could be included in there, is intended to lead us to repentance. Imagine a scenario in which it's time for a family heirloom to be passed from one generation to the other, and you're the recipient, or your child is the recipient, and this, is, you, this has been passed down from, from grandfather to grandson to son, and you go up to your child, you go up to your son, your daughter, and you say, this, this heirloom has been in our family for generations, and it was my father's, and his father's before him, and his father's before him, and now it is time for you to receive this family heirloom. Imagine 
if that child looked at dad right in the eyes, took whatever that was, that heirloom was, while he's making direct eye contact and just like dropped it in the garbage. We would call that contempt, right? That would be contempt. That would be taking something that is obviously important, something that is of great value to this person, and treating them with contempt by the way that we treat that thing that they have given us. Correct? That is contempt. That's a good word. It's a good word for us to understand. Now, it's their gift. You have bequeathed it to them. It's their heirloom now. They are free to do with it what they will. But it still is contempt. You're always hearing these stories of people finding, like, incredible treasures at garage sales. Um, and they're finding, like, you know, an original copy of the Declaration of Independence for three bucks or in the free pile or whatever. Or they go to Goodwill and they find some whatever. Some Picasso that nobody knew was valuable, which maybe says something about Picasso's artwork. But whatever. They're, they're, this, this story I heard this week was about um, a bowl that this family had bought for $3 at a garage sale. $3 at a garage sale. They're like, oh, it's a nice bowl. Take it home. I don't know what they're doing. Eating Cheerios out of it. Ice cream. I don't know. They took a bowl. They, $3. An expensive bowl. Take it home. Probably had it on a mantle someplace. They had it on their mantle for years and years and years. And finally somebody came over that was like, you know what? That actually looks like it might be a valuable antique. We should take it in. They went in, had the thing appraised, and it's this ancient Chinese China. Chinese China, I guess that's redundant. But anyway, ancient piece of China that was worth $22 million dollars. Yeah, how many of you are going to go garage selling this week, right? Like, yeah, I'm going to find me one of those. Imagine the family, imagine the teenager eating Cheerios out of this $22 million bowl, right? Now, they could do it because they were in complete ignorance about the value, the priceless value of this bowl. I guess it's not priceless, $22 million. But imagine you paid $22 million, brought the bowl home, and then you walk into the kitchen and you see your teenage son eating Cheerios out of that bowl. You would have a heart attack, first of all, and then you'd be like, you are treating with contempt this incredibly valuable thing. What are you doing? You cannot use it for a purpose like that. It isn't, and, and your son would be like, it's a bowl. What's it supposed to be used for? I don't know, looking at, but you can't use it to eat ice cream out of. Like, that's, it's contemptible. You can't do that. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2, or do you show contempt for the riches of God? Listen, when we use God's unconditional love as an excuse to ignore sin, we are knowingly eating Cheerios out of a $22 million bowl. Yeah, you can do that. It's a free gift from God. His grace, His love, it comes without conditions, and that's what that means. God still loves you even if you show Him contempt, which is crazy, but that's what unconditional means. But come on, man. Like you have been given something priceless and that's what you're going to use it for? Think about this. Let's just put words to what we're doing when we don't deal with our sin the way God asks us to. Let's put words to it. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. I think I'm going to use it to go to Walmart and judge some people. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. I think I'm going to use it and just lose it with this customer service rep on the phone. They should learn to speak English. This is America. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. I think I'm going to use that free gift, that priceless gift. I'm going to spend some time on the internet, spending money I don't have, looking at images that I shouldn't look at. Thank you, Jesus. 
God has given us a free gift. It is a gift. It is unconditional. It is without strings. But man, is that the way we want to use the priceless gift of Christ on the cross? Is that what we want to do? I don't think so. Or do you not know that you're showing contempt for God's forbearance and his patience, not knowing that his kindness was intended to lead you to repentance? Listen, you're right. God does love you. And let me be abundantly, annoyingly clear. God still loves you even when you abuse his love. And that makes people nervous, right? They're like, well, hey, you can't, people are going to mess up. People are going to abuse God's love if you tell them that it's without conditions. That happened in the Bible. In fact, there's a number of places in the scriptures where they were trying to explain God's love, and they knew people would hear it as like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so there's three different verses, just real quick, we'll look at. Galatians 5.13, 1 Peter 2.16, Jude 1.4. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Do not use freedom as a cover-up for evil. They pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. They knew people would hear about God's unconditional love and be like, yeah, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. It's a gift. But man, I don't know that that's what we want to be doing. The nature of God's love is not to leave us broken. We're broken people, but the nature of God's love is not to leave us broken. I broke my arm when I was a 19-year-old. And in the immediately, immediate aftermath, you know, they took me to the ER, and I walked in holding my arm. It's out of place, and they want me to sign papers, and I'm like, just get me some painkillers, you know. Not usually grouchy, but I was pretty grouchy at that point. And, uh, and, and once they gave me the painkillers, I felt a lot better, but I didn't feel like the process was over. I was glad that that had been dealt with, but I still needed this bone to be fixed. I still needed, needed surgery to heal this problem. And I want you to understand something. God's love is not a painkiller. God's love is surgery. And he's fixing us. And he's healing us. And he's transforming us. But it all starts with that unconditional love. I want to wrap up uh, real quick and just tell you this, this story. I was in a, a coffee shop uh, earlier this week. And I'm, I have my Bible open to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And uh, I'm reading, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That's what God's kindness is for. And this guy walks in, and he's got a tattoo on his arm that says Romans 2.11. And I'm in Romans chapter 2, so I'm like, cool, I'm going to read Romans 2.11, see what that's all about. And uh, it says this, for God does not show favoritism. I think that's an interesting choice to get a tattoo on your arm. And I was like, oh, I should ask him what it's about. And he's probably like, he probably doesn't want to have a conversation. So I'm having this debate and finally like, whatever, I'm preaching. This will probably be a good illustration. So I ask him. And uh, turns out it was a good illustration. So I strike up this conversation. I was like, so tell me what's the motivation for having that verse uh, on your arm? And he said this. He said, when I first became a Christian, it seemed clear to me that based on the way people at church acted, that some people were more loved by God than others. Some people were more accepted by God than others. Some people were more liked by God than others. There were God's favorites, and then there was the rest of us, including me. And he said, when I read that verse, that God has no favorites, it changed what I believed about God. Because his beliefs about God were based on the way he was treated by people who claimed to love God. I thought this was so fascinating to me. The church has not done a great job of communicating God's unconditional love to people. We're worried that people are going to abuse it, and they certainly might. 
But you have to understand that when Paul wrote this letter, this is so cool. When he wrote this letter, notice the language that he used as we wrap up this morning. He said, if God is for us. And I I want it to be about me, and it certainly is. I believe God likes me. But God is for us. We are more than conquerors. Nothing will be able to separate us. So when we look at other people, particularly other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we judge them, and we condemn them, and we push them aside, and I know some of you are like, I feel like people have done that to me. This is not about what you feel like people have done to you. This is about what you do to people. Then we're missing the point of God's love. If God is for us, we are more than conquerors. So let me say this. God unconditionally loves and transforms me. But this is important, church. God unconditionally loves and transforms us. We are not perfect, but we are unconditionally, absolutely loved and liked and transformed by God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these truths, Lord. And even when these truths don't sink deeply in our hearts, I pray that the seed is planted, that those moments when we're tempted to feel like you don't love us or you don't care about us, that we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, those moments when we're tempted to take your love for granted and do things with that free gift that we know we should not do, I pray that we'd be reminded of how overwhelming and overpowering your love is through Christ, in Christ, on the cross. And Lord, when we're tempted to judge, when we're tempted to discount, when we're tempted to show favoritism, I pray that we would be reminded of your amazing, unconditional love in Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.